Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Joe McHugh, the host of Rosin the Bow, a podcast about the violin family. We recorded this in February at the Ole Old Time Festival in Olympia, Washington. Get Up in the Cool Volume 3, the best of 2018 compilation album, is now available for pre-order. If you want to hear high-fidelity versions of some of last year's best tunes to be featured on the show, from guests like Roger Netherton and Jane Rothfield, follow the link in the show notes on your podcast app or this episode's Facebook post. And if you want a CD, you better act fast. I only printed so many, and I'm about to wrap up my tour with Jake Blunt, so hopefully I'm almost out. Dave Liddell, thank you for supporting Get Up in the Cool on Patreon. I'm so glad you like the show and your support really means a lot to me. Take a look at those bonus video episodes I posted back in January of Paul Brown, Hooten Holler, Ashley Watkins and Andrew Small, and the final performance of my Australian tour. I want to thank Elderly Instruments in Lansing, Michigan for sharing Get Up in the Cool online with their customers and increasing the reach of the show. Next time you need an instrument upgrade or new music gear, visit their online store at elderly.com. Stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how you can keep up with this week's amazing guest. But first, here's my interview and jam with Joe McHugh. Enjoy. Going down to Giorgio. Joe McHugh, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. It's uh, great to be here. And you have probably explained this earlier in your series, mm. but getting up in the cool, I would think, is about getting up in the mountains? I, I would certainly think so, or getting up in the in the morning, maybe? Or do oh. you know, and you're telling me? <laughs> no, I don't know. No, it's a great title. I, I'm just referring to the Eck Robertson tune, which is the, uh, the theme song for the show. <laughs> There you go. Get up in the cool. Get up in the cool. Yeah. Uh, but I think when I tell most people, they assume that it's like a James Brown-ism. Like a, <laughs> get up in the cool, yeah. or something like that, because that's what it sounds like. Something a little more peaceful than that. But So uh, you, you're you the host of Rosin the Bow. I am. More 
podcasts about music, interviews. Uh, but but you, the, the point of your show is uh, about the violin family. Right. right. And, and that kind of has a double meaning. So you, you have yeah. the violin family being those instruments we associate with the violin family. So that's technically it would be the violin, the viola, and the cello. Mm-hmm. And then I include the bass. Sure. And, uh, you know, technically, some people would say that's a viol. It's not really a ah, violin. I'm sure but, bassists appreciate being included. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to get all that bass world in, including jazz. And I mean, yeah. think of jazz really can come in. Uh, and then and then I love the uh, what I call the, the, uh, the kissing cousins or distant cousins. So you have the uh, Norwegian hardanger fiddle. You have the Mongolian horsehead fiddle. Oh, you, know, you have these. And then I like the Baroque instruments, the uh, amore, uh, you know, the... Uh, Viola d'Amore, those kind of instruments. So it's a, it's a real exploration of that family of instruments, but the second meaning of family is all the people that have a real connection to these instruments whose lives have been truly shaped or enchanted by their relationship. So that is musicians, of course, but it's violin makers, collectors, dealers, auctioneers, uh, string designers, mm. tone wood experts. You know, we tried to, in fact, think through everybody really had a stake in what was going on with these instruments, past and present. And it's amazing when you start to really think about, you know, all the people you can bring into that conversation, composers and and then uh, FBI agents that have helped find stolen Stradivarius, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, and all these instruments, and you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by the mythology around the violin. Mm. I'm a fiddler myself, an old-time fiddler. And, uh, you know, when I first showed up in West Virginia as a city kid back in the 70s and fell in love with this music, the, the people playing it seemed to be sort of outsized characters. They were just unusual human beings that I had never met before. And, of course, then you'd be picking up violins that had rattlesnake rattles in them. Yeah. And uh, what was that all about? You know, why were they doing that? It's a great question. <laughs> yeah, it is a great question. And, and then, of course, you have Paganini and the idea that his mother, I love that, his mother sold his soul to the devil so oh that he God. could. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that he could, uh, you know, be the be musician that he was. And then when he died, this uh, belief was so widespread, this folklore about Paganini, that he was refused burial in sacred ground by oh the church. Goodness until about, I don't know how many, 20, 30 years later after he was gone, his son made a rather sizable donation to the church. Yeah. And he then was uh, allowed to Yeah, they'll to look the better. other way yeah. well. <laughs> if the price is right. Yeah. Well, maybe they just revisited their opinions yeah, of the devil yeah. at that point. You know, so. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, so you find that both in the, uh, the classical world and mm-hmm. you find it in the folk world, of course, Charlie Daniels, selling your soul to the devil. Sure, and, sure. And then a lot of the fiddle tunes themselves had great stories associated with them. And I was just, I found myself as drawn to the tunes, I mean, uh, I should say the stories associated with these tunes, the, the folklore. So um, the violin just has that um, sort of, uh, it grabs our attention. Yes. And even people don't play it. Um, 60 Minutes did some show not too long ago about uh, Stradivari and Guarneri and the town of Cremona in Italy. They went and you know, covered, did something. And, and people would come up to me who have no connection to the violin, and they'd say, oh, I saw that show on 60 Minutes. See, there's something yeah. about that name and the idea. And uh, so anyhow, I'm going on, but, you know, how many, and how many violins have a label in it that says, you know, Antonio Stradivari? Yeah. Of course, usually that was meant just to show you what year or design it was, because often it would say under it, made in Germany, you know. But people really believe they had a Stradivari. <laughs> 
And maybe they were planning to put the kids through college with that one day. Yeah. I mean, truly believe they had this object of great worth. And that's a deep mythological idea, you know, that the, the, the thing of most value is found in the most unlooked-for place. Mm. So the great stories about flea markets and, you know, how some old guy came in and sold you a fiddle. In fact, the fiddle I'm playing cost me $100, and I bought it in this library. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. So where are we right now? We're in Olympia, Washington. Yeah, but what is the name of this library? Uh, Timberland. Timberland, okay. Appropriate enough. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is the Olympia branch of a whole bunch of libraries. You bought this in the, I bought it in this Why library. are libraries selling violins? What happened? <laughs> well, what happened is there's a violin shop in town. Okay. I've been working on this project for uh, three years, three and a half years almost. And I do have a violin I'm very fond of. And... Uh, so I was in a local violin shop, and uh, the owner I know quite well, and this couple came in, and they have a little antique store in town, or second-hand store, really, more. And uh, they had this violin, no strings on it, had no nut, which is a little piece of ebony at the top by the scroll, so no bridge. And, and really the most god-awful varnish job you ever saw in your life. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't bother me in the least, but it, you know, it's, it's an eyesore to some people. And so they brought it in, and Bob was there, and they said, what should we charge for this? You know, we want to sell it. And he was he couldn't have been nicer about it. He could have said, look, you know, I just don't deal with that. But he looked inside and he said, well, as a matter of fact, this was made in Paris, late 1800s. He said, but with that finish, I can't sell it, you know. Yeah. I can never sell it. He <laughs> said, so if you could find a fiddler, maybe a fiddler would buy it. And they said, oh, thank you. And and they left, and it was an old wooden coffin case, a really nailed-together coffin <laughs> case, a handmade one. You know, So it had all this weird charm to it. But I was sitting there away from this, and I didn't want to say anything because you wouldn't. You're in the shop. It's his business. And I'm thinking, and they mentioned their antique store on the way out. So I thought, well, would I go over there and take a look at it? And then I realized so many people I've interviewed in this project talk about the bug. It's like a bug for just you want to get that violin and you want to get this and the mystery and will you find the thing that you know and I was determined not to get that bug and I didn't know a thing yeah. about that violin I couldn't hear it how, am I, how much am I going to spend for it yeah. right I just wasn't going to take a chance on it and so I showed a great degree of self-control good and for you I, Jeff I, really and I my wife's over here and she's probably pleased too because I just didn't do that instead I uh Went about my business. I did not go to the antique store. So two hours later, I happened to stop in the library here. Yeah. And by God, there's the two people sitting at, the, at a computer terminal. So I went over to them. I said, excuse me, were you in Bob Ray's violin shop? And they said, yes. I said, well, you know, I was kind of intrigued with that violin because I took it as a sign. I do take things as signs. There you go. <laughs> here they were. I said no. It's not the bug. It's no. fate. That's It's not your better. fault. Right, right. It's not an uncontrolled <laughs> passion here. It's the real deal. Yeah. So I said to them, um, well, you know, I'm kind of interested. And I said, how much do you want for it? And they looked at me. I think they were a bit puzzled. And they said, well, you know, how about three or $400, $400? And I, I said, I'll tell you the truth. I couldn't spend. I have no idea what it is. Yeah. And I've played many violins that just did nothing for me. You uh -huh. know? I mean, they're legion. They might play for other people. But, you know, getting sure. one that really plays for you is a, is a long and, uh, you know, takes long and few and far between. So... But the fellow got up and he went out to the car immediately and came, brought it back in in that coffin case that's all nailed together and opened it up. And, and I said to him, look, I, I just couldn't risk more than $100. I have no idea what it's worth. I don't want to cheat anybody, 
but that's all I can take a chance on. They kind of looked at each other and they said, we'll take it. Yeah. So I had $80 in my pocket. And I said, well, I have to go this, up to the bank and use the machine. And I went up and I thought, you know, they might leave by then and that'll settle that. And I got back. They were still waiting. Yeah. So I gave them $100. But then I still had to look, well, you know, I got some money to put in this. Need a bridge? You know, that's 100 bucks. You know, if you get it done right, get a setup and then the strings and, and the knot had to be replaced and tuning pegs weren't very good. And uh, because of this project, I had the good fortune to meet a violin maker and repairman in North Carolina, a fellow named Nick Lampo, who was on the board of the uh, Violin Society of America. That's how I met him. I did a talk for their conference or convention. And he's just a great guy. He's just retired from a regular job as a bank, in the IT part of the bank. And I called him up and I was asking him questions about this violin. And he said, Joe, he said, I'll tell you what, you mail it to me. He said, I'll just do the work for you. You pay for the parts. And I said, oh, Nick, you don't have to do that. And he said, well, how about, you know, send me some of the recordings from your radio series. Huh. I, was, I love to listen to them in the shop. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I sent him a couple, I've written a couple of books. So I sent him a couple of books. And he took it. And, you know, a month went by and it came back in the mail. And I took it out and it was all strung up. And I put it under my chin and pulled the bow across and... It was the violin that I've been looking for. I mean, and I like the violin I had, but this one was like, whoa, what is this? And so that's how I bought it in this library where we're doing the interview. That is so special because we weren't even planning on doing the interview in this library. No, no, we got, I like that. Uh, we got, there's, it was too, too crowded in the folk school. Or we got the, your workshop was going to be in the folk school and then uh, no, 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 somewhere else. No, the snow, right, because we were being yeah. this first Christian church and then we had this huge snowfall yeah. here. And, and so, yeah, everything got kind of changed around, but here we are. Perfect. So it's Perfect. great for that story. And it, it's, a, it's a lovely fiddle. And one time I was showing it to one violin maker, and he, he said, oh, it's got a pillowy sound. A pillowy, a pillowy sound. sound. I, I, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, it's like you want to put your head on it like a nice pillow. It just has a nice sound. <laughs> on the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like pillowy, you know. So it's probably not the most dynamic fiddle or it has, you know, the greatest uh, projection and so forth. I did learn something about violins that I think is useful uh, for anyone out there who plays the instrument. I, ha I had the good fortune to interview Elmer Olivara, who's a very well-known classical solo violinist. And he won the Tchaikovsky competition, the first Westerner to win it in Moscow. It's a big deal when he was young. Yeah. So he's he's knows his business, and he and he trades in violins too, and you know some of that. So I went to Florida where he was, and I interviewed him. And he said, and he had a couple of violins to show me what he was talking about. He said basically there's three three elements that you are considering when you look at a violin. One is the tone, you know, the quality of the tone. The second is its responsiveness. And the third is its ability to project. And he said, usually no violin will have all three of those elements right. you know, to the same degree. Right. So you kind of have to know what you want it for. And this particular violin is very responsive. Like when you touch it, it just, and I've only had two other violins in my life over many years, that when you touch it, it just is like, okay, what do you want to do? Where, <laughs> you want to go? You know, come on, let's try this. You never went up to third position. What the hell? Let's just go up there and see yeah, what yeah. happens. You know, it's just like that. It's the nature of it. Yeah. And it has a very pleasant tone. The, yeah, the high strings aren't strident, so they don't grate on my older ears. And I've become very comfortable with it. And it's, as I say, the uh, finish on it is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's uh, got its own look, you know, like yeah. I do at my age. So we're friends. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's lovely to look at. <laughs> 
<laughs> the I back's the a little bag. more insane. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of luck. But I would never change it. Well, you know, I got to interview Mark uh, O'Connor. Oh, yes. And uh, it was a wonderful interview. And I'm, he's told the story, I'm sure, other times. But he has, when he was young and winning all these contests all over the country, he was playing a white violin. Now, I'm not talking about a white violin. The old expression for white violin is before the varnish is put on. They I call see, that I in see. the white, right? Is before the varnish goes on a violin. But this was a violin that was painted enamel oh, paint no. white. And what? <laughs> and uh, Benny Thomason, who was his famous uh, Texas contest fiddler, who had taught Mark as a young man how to play, a real mentor-student relationship. Uh, like old, many old fiddlers, you know, had six fiddles under the bed, and that's part of that bug, you know, yeah. 12 fiddles here and there. So one day, Mark was in these contests, and he was showing some real talent. And his mother, who was there, said, you know, gee, I think Mark needs a kind of better instrument. And so Benny said, well, try this one. He pulls this out, and it's painted white. He had found it on a, I think, a hunting or fishing trip. They went into a barn to clean the fish or whatever they had caught. And this thing was hanging on the wall as an ornament with no strings, no pegs, painted white. And he strung it up and thought it had something. Well, it turns out it's a famous violin. It's been in the uh, Country Hall of Fame for many years, and uh, Mark O'Connor took it out. So in the interview I did with him, he tells the whole story. But he said, I could be at the other end of a football field. And I started playing this thing. He said, I blew everybody away. He said, I won contests, just blew them away <laughs> with this thing. And nobody knows why it had that quality. And then some people said, well, we could take that paint off and revarnish it. And then everybody kind of paused and said, wait a second, don't mess with it. Yeah. yeah. And so that's I would never mess with this one. I don't know what's yeah, it might stop, it might the it's like you don't put your um you wouldn't like just put the pillow in the wash. Yeah, <laughs> it might exactly. not feel like it might not be as comforting anymore. That's right. Hmm. Let's play another tune. Uh, what do you want to play next? Uh let's see. Well we got D tunes. Yeah. Well let's do the old uh, Fisher's hornpipe. Yes. I like the hornpipes. And they, these are the ones I was listening in central West Virginia. They, they tend to play these kind of little notier tunes when mm -hmm. I was in, back in the 70s when I was learning. <laughs> yeah, it's got the notes in it. Yeah, yeah. Somebody was being paid by the note. I don't know. Mm. Uh, I, I got. Oh, go I, ahead. I would love to ask you when and why did you start playing violin, or was it fiddle when you started? Well, I, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, 
So, you know, uh, which when we first moved there in the early 1950s, uh, was fairly prosperous town. It had one time been a very prosperous town. It had been founded by uh, uh, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, who's all the rage now. Yeah, but yeah, as the first in planned industrial town, because after the revolution, you know, his idea was we have to start manufacturing our own things, not importing from Europe. Sure. So interesting town, interesting history. But by the early 60s, you had white flight, all this, you know, kind of inner city uh, thing happening. And uh, so I went to a high school where uh, they made a move movie with uh, Morgan Freeman playing the principal. And it's an out of control high school. That's based in Patterson? Yeah, that's the high school I went to. That was Lean wow. on Me was the name of the movie. I've seen that movie. <laughs> there it's you go. a fantastic movie. If I, it's been a while, but <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. based on a real guy that uh, had come in as a uh, kind of controversial. As a matter of fact, you know, Hollywood can always make things look a little different. But he'd come in. He was a former Marine sergeant, had a baseball bat, and you know, allegedly drove all the uh, drug dealers and people <laughs> out of the school. But this was he came in a little after I had left. So, but when I was there, it was it was uh, pretty wild. Yeah. And uh, But anyhow, um, I wound up moving to West Virginia at some point. I kind of went through a big hippie stage and still am a hippie at heart, I think, although that's not a word we would have used to describe ourselves at the time. Um, and I had gone across the country in a school bus and had a leather shop. And But eventually I got this bug for Back to the Land, which is a big thing in 1970. So I bought a farm, 80-acre farm, with a house and three barns on a year-round road in central West Virginia for $6,000. I like to oh. tell people that, I know. And it was a working farm, and but by, again, we're talking about coincidence or hand of God stuff, you know, like the violin here at the library. It was only uh, 12 miles from the town of Glenville. And Glenville is really known among people who play our kind of music as one of the best old-time festivals where you had a real transmission of the tradition um, not from people who had picked it up off the radio or recordings as much. It was really passing down through families at that time yeah. in the early 70s. So we got, I got to hang around you know, with some of the legendary characters now that we talk about, Melvin Wine and, as I said, Franklin George and Glenn Smith, people like that. And um, I was just strumming a little guitar. I was um, sort of Peter, Paul, and Mary, um, that kind of folk music, Kingston Trio maybe. I mean, just that's all I knew as That was music. the zeitgeist of the time, like yeah. that, like pop folk music. Yeah, it was going through this yeah. big revival thing. Sure. Yeah, and um, and I'd heard a little bit of Pete Seeger, but in the Weavers, which is this old group that he used to be in. So I, I'd heard a banjo, but at a, you know within a within a group of people playing. I never heard a banjo played solo. Yeah. And uh, and so anyhow, I moved to West Virginia, and one of the first people I heard give a concert was Dwight Diller, mm. uh, and he gave a solo concert and played that claw hammer style, and then sang Oh Death, which I'd never heard, didn't know anything about. Of course, now because of the movie, yes. Oh Brother, Where Art yes. Thou, people have heard it. But God, he sang it with such a deep intensity. And it was it just like a key went in a lock. And I could feel this key turn as if I knew this other world. And uh, all I wanted to know was more about it. And it's only been recently, I mean, really in the last couple of years, where I've even thought about the term we use for this music, old time. Mm. Oh, you know, it's old time, right? It's happened in the 1800s or whatever. It's old time music. And I realized the operative word is not old. The operative word is time. It's the old concept of time. It's the old experience of time, when time was a different um, reality to people, where time 
contracts and expands where time, that's the nature of time. It's not the way we think about it or approach it, it is the way time can be. And we know that in our dreams at night and our folklore is full of those stories. You know, Rip Van Winkle or the, yeah. you know, going to the ferry fort and coming out in a hundred years has gone by. This idea that time can be, uh, have another dimension and have a kind of reality of its own. I think these old people that I was meeting in the 70s uh, were the where they were carrying that consciousness, not just these tunes. And the tunes often were a real reflection of the way they spoke, too. Um, you know, I have some recordings of some people telling stories there that weren't musicians, and you hear Melvin Wine's tune, and then you hear Alita Singleton telling this great old story about raising horses or whatever, and you hear the it's the same music. It's sure. the music. They're singing. It's a really old place, and coming, as I did, out of a rapidly industrializing world in which time is decided by the machine, by the clock, by the schedule, uh, there was just something uh, completely different about that. Also, I got in a fight with a power company over deposit because I was a hippie guy, and they were kind of pulling my chain. I knew it, and I'm Irish, and they're like, well, you can get that $25, so you got... And I got mad at them, and I said, well, you can keep your power. And they did. Yeah. And so uh, for, for him, you know, I five years, I didn't have electricity. And so, man, when I went native, I went really native. And I think it helped greatly. Uh, I'm going on here, but uh, I like to talk sometimes to people about dusk because I had gas, which was great. So I had gas heat. I had a gas refrigerator, which was wonderful. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. They're dead quiet. Great. Think of it. You know how yeah, loud sure. those things are in our houses, electric refrigerators? Yeah. They really are. They're a There's, presence. Yeah. And it's like all, so many of my recordings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just fridges, yeah, and you're always asking, can you, turn, yeah. Yeah, can you turn it off? And they're like, no, I'll forget to turn it on. Right. Yeah. But this one, and it also had a kind of zen thing, which is very cool, right? You get down on your hands and knees, you, you light a match, and you light it, the pilot, and it gets cold. You just got to love that kind of reverse weird yeah, shit. That's know? really weird. <laughs> so I love that refrigerator. So I had a refrigerator. I had heat. Uh, but I, I still had to have oil lamps. Mm -hmm. And oil lamps work by contrast. It's the way our eyes. So at dusk each evening, you don't get much light from them. But yet it's getting dark. And I was doing leather work at home at a shop. So I would have to stop, you know, using sharp tools and things. I would. And maybe wouldn't make dinner yet. So I'd go out on the porch at dusk. And there was just about 10, 15 minutes. I didn't realize until many years later, thought back on that, that that was really a pattern. And you, f you could really feel the day end. And the day has a different reality to it. The animals, the sounds, the, the, just everything. And then dusk comes and night is here. And so you're these saying new animals come out. You're saying there's a moment when um, the kind of lamp that you had wasn't enough to compete with dusk. So I would just sit on the porch rather and, than do anything else. And the natural light was, was low. Yeah. So, like, you, you really couldn't do anything There's other than sit on the porch. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'm, it sounds like I'm writing this because it's really true. I had a whippoorwill, and you never see them. They're hidden. They're an interesting uh, bird. I don't think I've ever seen one. And I had a resonant whippoorwill. And just at dusk, I'd sit on that porch. It was like, and it would start whippoorwill, whippoorwill, whippoorwill. And I was up at the end, what they call the end of the holler. I was the last farm all by myself. And I'd be, you know, looking down and, and dusk and the day would be ending. And it was uh, something I cherish. 
And, uh, and years later, I came across the poem, The Mountain Whippoorwill, mm. uh, about a fiddle contest in Georgia. It's a great poem by Stephen Vincent Benet. And uh, you know, I could really relate to it. So those were the experiences that brought me into that music. And, uh, and then I had the opportunity. I, I, in fact, Dwight Diller, I traded him a leather purse. I was doing leather work, and I traded him a leather purse for a fiddle, and that was my first fiddle. Mm. And uh, so that's how it started. And then got to hang out with these people that were playing. It's great. <laughs> you traded Dwight Diller a leather purse for a fiddle. Inside a teepee. Inside a teepee. Yeah, oh we, uh, it was a big arts and craft fair where I was exhibiting my leather work. And I had met this guy. Who was, he was a uh, trip. And he had a full, I mean, really a full Indian teepee. And he did kind of much more natural uh, leather work. And it was skins and hair you know, the first still on and all. And I talked to people running this festival into letting us exhibit our leather work in a teepee rather than the regular booze. Yeah. It was a state art craft fair. You know, it was a kind of a high-end show. And they let us bring this teepee. I think they rude them the decision as soon as we showed up with the teepee. <laughs> I mean, they're like, what did we allow, you know? <laughs> but it turns out it was the hottest summer. God, it was hot at that festival. And Dwight had been hired, and a bunch of you know, these musicians, people would know, had been hired to perform. It was, you know, money for them. It was a job. And it was so hot that when they weren't on stage, the teepee was the coolest place on the grounds. Because it has this natural, there's like an inner wall, and the way the ventilation works in a teepee is quite remarkable. So we were rather cool inside the teepee. And so we were sitting in a teepee, and Dwight Diller said, uh, and, I, and I never thought to play the fiddle. Fiddle to me is so exotic. It seemed like an instrument I could never even come near. You know, I never had violin as a kid or anything. I could strum a guitar, even the banjo, I could kind of understand what it was. And then uh, I, for some reason, said something, you know, I wonder if I'll ever try to play the fiddle. And he looked at me and said, well, I got one in my car, kind of worried about it, it's so hot out. He said, but uh, I'd really like to get one of your purses for Molly, my wife. <laughs> so we traded. And the fiddle was made by a guy named McGee. I have no idea who he was. And mm. it wasn't a great fiddle, but I had it for a few years. So it got me started. Yeah. Yeah, but in a teepee, isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah, good origin story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love, there, there's a wonderful uh, last line in a, a poem by um, Spoon River Anthology. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, and Masters, and it wrote it. And uh, it's uh, Fiddler Jones. And the last line is, you know, basically how he says, uh, I ended up with 40 acres, I ended up with a broken fiddle, and a broken laugh, and a thousand memories. And not a single regret. Yeah. yeah. I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going on here. But. Oh, yeah, I, about, about team time. Okay. Uh, we had one more detune that we were going to do, didn't we? Yeah, we were trying that Sally and the Green Corn. Yes. Want to give it that shot? Yes, this please. is new for you. So it's yeah, amazing you pick it up. It's got a little extra. That's all I remember.
a really neat one. That's a good Thanks for that. <laughs> I get less and less new tunes to me on the show, you know, as the show goes on. Sure. I've never heard that one before. Yeah, <laughs> That's perfect. Carrie Blesch, good fiddler. We got it from him. I think it came out of Ohio someplace, and fiddler, he had heard it. He was great for picking up, you know, the old oddball tune. So Wonderful. Yeah, and as I, we were talking earlier, my, or my wife's a painter as well as a good banjo player. I mean, we do play together as a duo. And she uh, has been inspired for a number of years now by the titles of fiddle tunes for her paintings because the titles are so evocative. You yes. Know, Billy in the, in the Low Ground or yeah. you know, Red-Haired Boy or Steamboat Around the Bend. Sure. And, and they just bring up imagery. And uh, so she gets an idea of what she'll do with a painting. So she did that painting and then... Uh, uh, it's really fun to live with somebody who has this kind of visual imagination who's trying to figure out, you know, where the, that enchantment is, you know, because it's, it's uh, we, I mean, we like looking at fiddlers, don't we? I mean, you like looking at banjo players. There's, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a visual part to all this, too. And sometimes we forget that. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so anyhow, I don't, just thought I'd bring that up. But she did a great painting of the, for that one. Sally. Yeah, what's the painting of? What's well, like? you know, Sally and the Green Corn could be anything, and right. we were talking about that, uh, but she decided it was a dog, Sally. Perfect. And so it has Sally kind of peeking around some corn stalks. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's got, like, golden retrievers, like, boy, they like that one, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's a sweet painting. <laughs> People like dogs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> They yeah. like to think about them. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I interviewed a guy one time, and... Uh, Abner the eccentric. He's a mime and a clown, and one of the funniest human beings I ever saw in my life. And I used to teach storytelling at Augusta, the program there in West Virginia, Very which neat. was a wonderful thing because I was a fiddler, but I was mostly there to teach storytelling. But it was a whole week-long program, so I could grab fiddlers because I find they're often just kind of characters, and they're good yeah. tellers. And there's a rhythmic sense that people, any musician, gets. You know, so they tell a story. And sometimes it's it just works. And so I'd get Dewey Balfa or I'd get uh, uh, Kevin Burke and people to come into my class and talk about the storytelling traditions from their culture, mm. which was great. And it got them out of talking about what they normally did, which is their music, and they could talk about things. So what a great place to teach storytelling. Yeah, perfect. And then, you know, and then you stay up to 3 in the morning in the Ice House playing tunes. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, <clears throat> but anyhow, um, Abner the Eccentric one year, was a completely different program. It had nothing to do with Augusta, but it was on the same campus at Davis and Elkins College. It was part of a movement and clowning festival. And instead of going to square dance one night, a bunch of us went to see this guy, Abner the Eccentric. We had no clue who he was. And we laughed so hard. I mean, truly, our sides hurt. You know, we came back. And the next morning, we somebody came over and said, you know, where were you guys last night? You were at the square dance. We said, we were at Abner the Eccentric. We went on and on. And this guy, for the rest of the time we were there, was kept like, damn it, our why did I go to that square dance? <laughs> I just kind of heard this guy. Yeah. It almost became a legend of Augusta. But anyhow, I interviewed him many years later about a whole different project on the nature of storytelling. And he started the interview by saying there's only three things we do in the world as people. We breathe in, we breathe out, or we hold our breath. Mm. And you breathe in first when you're born, and you breathe out when you go. Yeah. And everything's about understanding what you're doing with your breath. Now, I have thought a lot about that, and I've interviewed some people about the violin who often talk about the bow being the breath of the violinist. Sure. Right? And it's about the same amount of breath you would have if you were singing or reciting of how long you can draw a bow if you use your full bow. So I thought a lot about that, and I realized that our mortal condition 
is this sort of experience of uh, the truncated breath. I breathe in, I breathe out. I breathe in, I breathe out. That's what I do the whole time. It's always broken, in and out, in and out. So a sustained note, which a really good fiddler can do, a violinist, yeah. speaks of another realm of immortality. It speaks of the higher realms. I really believe this. This is why violinists and fiddlers become sort of shamanistic in the societies in which they live. They're kind of shamanistic characters. What changes in our time is the invention of the electric guitar. Yeah. The electric guitar can do the same thing. Sure. Right? So suddenly you have all these Jimi Hendrix, you know, and you have, uh, you know, these people who play guitar and can hold these really long notes suddenly have the, all this kind of magical shamanistic thing, and we have all these people looking to them as if looking to the gods. I think there's something about this constant sound mm. uh, that isn't broken. Uh, and so, uh, for whatever that's worth, it, it's, uh, you know, what, what is going on with these instruments that we can do that? The banjo would be the, almost the complete opposite of that. Yeah. Everything's you know, <laughs> truncated into a little bits of you know sound that don't sustain that long yeah. so they have to be uh you have to get a rhythm going where they sort of build, start building up on each other and but you're playing with violinists so what's your thoughts about that as a player you know it's sort of like uh this is a i think i'll be able to connect this back in but um <laughs> are you familiar with synth synthesizers and uh, how they work a little, a little yeah. bit i'm also only a little bit familiar with them but um so my brother-in-law, John, was showing me how um, when you uh, use the oscillator, you can, you can make it warble. Um, and then uh, if you turn it up fast enough, you can make this war the warbling of the, of the note turn into another note because pitch is just oscillation, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it's... If you get notes going fast enough, it just becomes one tone. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you think about it, it's it's almost like the banjo is a really low, like the mixture of all the notes together. Mm -hmm. Like uh, if you were to speed it up, you would get a pitch, but it's like a it's a pitch that's lower than you can actually hear almost. Mm -hmm. I, I guess maybe that's the closest we can get to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, these are interesting subjects I find to think about. I know we're rambling here, but... No, it's great. It's, it's so what podcasts are for. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be so formalized. So I'm no. still trying to wait for you to say, what is it about fiddlers that you think is universal or... Oh, right. Um, I would have to say resilience is something. Uh, I think mm. you have to be um, resilient because in order to learn how to play the fiddle, it just seems so... Um, so punishing it hurts your body and it hurts your ears you know to like to learn how to do it the other day um hmm. uh my friend joel who i met because i had him on the show um or that's when i started to get to know him um, but he's here at this festival as well and we were just playing tunes last night he posted on facebook um he he said when i hear myself playing fiddle Rec like recorded when I hear recording of myself, I want to throw my fiddle in the trash. Now, typically on social media, um, the way that people, <laughs> the way that people respond to this kind of thing would be, oh, this is a, a fishing for like reassurance or a, a compliment, you know. So like typically people would say, you know, oh no, you're beautiful or like you're you're talented or like whatever, and they would like say 
what Joel needs to hear to feel better about his plan. But no, since, because he was talking about fiddle, right. a bunch and it, all of his friends are fiddlers, they all responded, oh, my God, me too. <laughs> and, and he got some of the best fiddlers I've ever heard to, like, say, like, yeah, I also uh, hate playing fiddle, basically, because it makes me feel so bad. Uh, but, you know, and, he, and then at the end of this thread, he said, this makes me feel a lot better. Thank you so much. That is what he was ultimately fishing for, is to hear um, people who were farther along in their fiddler journey say, right. yes, uh, there is an element to playing this instrument that is punishing. Well, I, uh, I, I think this is very apt. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book about this journey we've been on for the last three years. So it's different. You can take this these interviews, these conversations, which are similar to what we're doing, you know, hopefully getting kind of down into the heart of what people think about it and how they got there. And of course, in mine, it's their relationship with the instrument, right? It's not so much the tune, so the music, you know, Bach or whatever. It's more what's your relationship with the instrument. Yeah. That's been our focus. So, um, so anyhow, I, I, there was a, I'm always looking for something unusual, but still is is relatable to this project. And I had been told uh, that there was a, uh, a scholar, a musicologist at the University of North Carolina, Mark Katz is his name, that uh, was an expert on music being used in film. And boy, did I get my wires crossed, but that's what I thought he was. And okay. I'm thinking, so one of the most famous use of a violin is in the movie Psycho. Yeah, that whole oh, murder scene. Yeah, yeah. For the stabbing. Yeah, exactly. That's what stabbing sounds like. I think like the now. whole Stab movie right? only has one violin in it, right? Yeah. You know. So I thought, what would he say about that? Of you course, know, and, of and all the other things, the cellos and all the things that yeah. have been used in film. So I called him up and I'm, I thought I communicated this to him, but obviously I must not have. So I show up to do the interview, as we have done here, and you yeah. know what it's like. You have to find him, you have to be in the office, you have to get mm -hmm. your equipment out and everything. And I, I said to him as I'm setting up the equipment, you know, well, you know, I'm interested in this thing with film. And he kind of looked at me and says, well, you know, I really don't know much about that subject. And I'm, you don't, you know. <laughs> and he says, no. He said, I'm an expert, or he said, my study has been, his doctorate, on the earliest recording of violin music. The recording okay. of violins, you know, on, on wax cylinders and, you know, people who knew Brahms and yeah. knew Mendelssohn who still recorded in our time. And, uh, well, it turns out it was a great interview because it was about what happens when we hear the recordings and how troubling this was for some of the most absolutely most lionized oh, no. violinists of their age. I could only imagine them <laughs> hearing themselves for yeah. the first time. And yeah. they felt they didn't play quite in tune. They felt their rhythm wasn't solid. So, but it brings up a very important question. So we, I had a long conversation with him and then went and interviewed a uh, engineer who in fact lives here in town and he's a mic designer of a world-class mic microphone designer. And he taught at Evergreen, he's just retired, taught audio recording technology. And he's worked for you know major studios on some very well-known albums. And he says, well, he was so disturbed because he's getting a lot of young people that were showing up at college who had given up on music. And they had played, but they'd stopped. And he'd say, why? And he says, well, you know, I hear so-and-so group, and I'll never get that good. Yeah. And he said, but I knew I was the one who made him that good. They yeah. really aren't that good, yeah. you know? And so I did a long interview with him around things like auto-tune and, yeah, you know, sure. and click tracks and all the different techniques that are used to make this thing we're now listening to. And it's, an, it's a change, a fundamental change of aesthetic. Again, it's that industrialized mind. We talk about old time yeah. and, and this time. 
So I think those people who were wonderful violinists who heard their music and then suddenly, you know, had this crisis. But before that, there was something else people in that room were getting from that experience. It had nothing to do with this precision of the machine, the precision, you know, and the aesthetic. And this is what virtuosity is. And before you can be a professional, this is how you have to be. Um, so um, it's a very, it's a really important subject. And so I'm trying to write a chapter called Music and Machines, yeah. but within the context of this, so that we, uh, we don't allow this to, to discourage us from playing the music because ultimately that's not the point. No. <laughs> but it's so hard to make a living at it, then suddenly you're in the marketplace and you've got to sell a CD and the expectation it's going to have that good sound. And it's a, it's a rough road for musicians who maybe, that maybe that's not their true calling. I think some people can do it. I interviewed Joshua Bell, you know, the famous violinist, and he's won Grammys for some of his recordings, but he said at the same time, I love live performance and if I miss a note, nobody knows it and right. nobody even cares. You know, that's not the point. But yet he can go in a studio, you know, he's one of these remarkable people and almost can shift psychologically into that other requirement. Yeah. And uh, in old time music, I think, has really been struggling with this lately. I'm not going to get on a soapbox, maybe, but I'm going to get this said. I didn't realize I was going to. What you have is <clears throat> you have a generation of young people who, uh, and I'll speak in the violin particularly, who had Suzuki or had training from a very early age, technical training, are really quite good. And they have the small violins, you know, they could graduate from the eighth to the half size and so yeah. forth. So now they get to the place where they want to, um, uh, they want to play and maybe they think, well, I'm gonna play in the classical world because that's what all my training is. Sure. And they go to an audition and instead of there being 20 people for that position, there's 300, right? A lot of trained people now. And yeah. Chinese violins, you know, good quality violins. People had good violins at an early age. Yeah. And they look around and they say, gee, you know, and then they discover the folk world. They, f they discover old time. And right away they say, oh, this is so much fun. You know, you can just, you can be up late at night. You can be playing with friends. There's all this cultural thing, context comes with it. And I can go into that world with, you know, just killer technique. And they come in with a killer technique and, you know, and then suddenly they're saying, well, you know, hey, why not? You know, let's, let's do an album and really show sure. how it's done. And I don't want to sound like some old guy like, oh, you kids coming in here ruin everything. You want to make it all better. <laughs> but it is a real factor in understanding what old time is. And so a lot of times younger people will go on YouTube. They'll find the old recording. They'll dress a certain way. They'll... They'll try to channel what they perceive as this older thing that they perceive as more authentic. Sure. Because of the world in which they live, in yes. which there's, you know, it's either that or work in a cubicle or something. You right. know, they're not really sure how this Learn all going to code. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. Work on code. So it's an interesting time, and I think some of those young people push through that that a trap, and they realize, you know what. Uh, yeah, it's a blessing I can play in tune. I enjoy playing in tune and so forth. But there's something else to be gained in this and uh, to allow, um, I don't know what I'm trying to exactly say. You know, so this old, old fiddler one time said to me, fiddling should be like a good dance floor. Shouldn't be too rough, but it shouldn't be too smooth. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's an excuse he couldn't play smooth. Yeah. But I, 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 interesting. A, I think it's an interesting thing that we have to wrestle with these questions because we come into them with a mindset from an industrial uh, society, a consumer society that sets high values to certain kinds of standards. And, 
you know, luckily I'm at an age now, 69, and, and I was at that time where I was meeting these older people who couldn't have cared anything about that because they just, they weren't self-conscious like we are now. They just weren't. And that's why we call them characters. They would do something, some things really stupid sometimes, but you look at them, yeah. they just weren't <laughs> conscious of it. You know, I mean, that was just what Ralph Ellison did, huh. you know? And we probably won't see that, uh, those people anymore in the world because we're so, we're so conscious. We have the cell phones filming us and the microphones. So I've been on a tear, but well, for uh, part, part of my goal with this show is I love old-time albums. I, I listen to them a lot. I think they're very special. However, I do not like them as much as I like uh, seeing those same people in a jam. Mm. It's always more interesting. Almost. I mean, sometimes some albums capture that feeling, but um, yeah, the the risk taking, the you know that uh, the uh, um, willingness to make mistakes, the the kind of music that gets made when um, you're not trying to sell something, when you're really not trying to sell mm -hmm. something, is uh, really special. And so, I guess what I'm trying to do with this show is like, yes, we're we're recording, but you can kind of have the comfort in knowing that. Uh, Worst case scenario, it's just a drop in the ocean of the internet, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So um, I think it encourages this sort of like uh, liminal space. Well, let's play another tune yeah, before we talk that. anymore. Let's do that. <laughs> you, this is an original tune. Yeah. You just taught it to me before we started restarted our recording. I don't remember if I remember it, but we'll see. I'll see what we can do in real time. Okay, yeah. it's, um, it's called Pat and Isaac's Road Trip. Yeah. It's my son Patrick and my grandson Isaac. Great. And they came up to see us. We were in Charlottesville at the time. And, uh, and then after they left, and I was staying in a house, a rental house, that had just the greatest acoustics. Just there wasn't a lot of furniture and high ceilings. And boy, those are great houses. You know, <laughs> and it inspired me.
Yeah, you do pretty good to pick it up Thanks. that quick. It's a little squirrely, that tune. Mm. Let's play. We'll play another uh, modal tune. You want to play one yeah, more? Yeah, what we got next? Well, let's see what we can play. Oh, we yeah. had that Pretty Little Indian. You want to try that yeah. one? Again, I'm Wh trying where's this from again? Well, this one I heard the very beginning was somewhere in the Glenville Folk Festival time in the early 70s. I don't know where it came from. But it's the first time I heard it, I just loved it. Mm. And then uh, Freda Epstein used to play a completely different version of it. And I don't know where she ever got hers because I've never heard the tune played anywhere else with the title. It's Pretty Little Indian yeah. is the title of it. And her timing of hers and mine were so different, and yet they were perfect together. Mm. And we used to, every time we'd see each other, we'd play that tune together. Because, you know, where I hold it, there's some notes you hold, and she'd hold them just in the, in the other place. And it just, yeah. they just, you know, wow, they were like, cool. <laughs> and we never recorded it. She passed away, unfortunately, mm. in, in a car accident. And uh, I, I've always kind of kicked myself that we didn't, you know, get that. So she's someplace, though. Yeah. She's a very dear soul. So, Pretty Little Indian. <clears throat> You're playing a lot. And these are new tunes mm. to you, too. The Hammonds family, if people are aware of them, from West Virginia. Um, and we talked about Dwight Diller. Was yes. Somebody I had first met when I first uh, was introduced to this music. And he uh, he helped get them recorded for a, a, a couple of albums that the Smithsonian, I believe, did for them. Uh, I think the Library of Congress or Smithsonian. But uh, Sherman Hammonds, uh, great storyteller. Just to, besides, they were great musicians, but he was such a good storyteller. And he tells a story about the Hammonds family, and I'm, of course, going to tell it in my words. But uh, when the frontier uh, 
um, you know, was, wasn't much further than Ohio or even Western Virginia. Yeah. And that really was the frontier. And he likes to tell a story that one of their ancestors was at a cabin way out. And of course, it was part of the native community, the Indian community that lived there. He knew them, they knew him, and there was sort of a live and let live thing going on. Mm. And one day this fellow shows up, one of the Indian members of this Indian tribe, and comes in and says, my friend Hammonds, I had a dream last night. And he goes, yeah? He said, I dreamt that you gave me your fine mountain rifle. Which is up <laughs> over the fireplace. And he knows that the way the mind of the, this person in the Indian tribe and tradition was that if it's dreamt, it's true. Yeah. So rather than say anything, he goes, Convenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He takes yeah. it down, he hands it to him very formally, and yeah. you know, take it then, my friend. And the fellow leaves. <clears throat> so Hammonds waits until there's a big banquet in the local village. Indian village, and he shows up. He's been invited, and he's there, and there's many people around. They're all whatever partying. And at one point, he stands up, and he says this guy, he says, my friend, I had a dream last night. <laughs> I dreamt you gave me back my rifle and two good ponies. And the fellow, of course, has to stand up and get the rifle to give it to him. And as he hands him the reins, the ponies, he says, my friend Hammonds, dream no more. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and Hammonds would tell that. You know, and you wonder, you know, you, we always think of the frontier as being just something that kept moving west. Mm. I always thought that way. And there's a history of the Hammonds family that shows them going from one part of uh, like uh, Virginia itself and then into Kentucky. Hmm. And then the, the line goes back into West Virginia. And it kind of goes the opposite direction. You think, well, that's not the frontier. Huh. And I, it took me a while to realize what was going on. They were people who lived in the woods. They weren't farmers. They were hunters, and they lived in a wooded culture. And what was happening is they, their frontier was getting at higher and higher altitudes because as they cut the timber, yeah. the high-altitude timber still remained, and that's where they would migrate. So they first went to Kentucky, and then they come back into the high part of West Virginia. Hmm. And at the end, that's where they remained because finally that forest was cut. So they were following the forest. Interesting. Yeah, which is an interesting way to think and of sad. the frontier. Yeah, it is sad. It really is sad, yeah. But they were great people. Very funny. People know the Hammondses. Mm. So shall we say that's enough, or you want to play yeah, anything let's, else? Yeah, well, before, mm -hmm. before we play a, la a last tune, sure. um, Rosin the Bow oh, yeah, let's talk is about your it. podcast. <clears throat> yeah. Where do people go to get it, and what is it about? And <laughs> just pitch this podcast. You've been referencing interviews that you've been... <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> the, right. you know, I'm sh I'm sure some, if not most, of those are from Rosin the Bow. Well, I I did I did a project some years ago called the Telling Takes Us Home, okay. and it was uh, looking at our love and fascination with family stories. And by family stories, I don't mean family histories, you know, elaborate family histories, but these kind of codified stories we tell at funerals and weddings. Yes. Uh, and we love to tell, and we kind of know our family stories, right? Even if you're not a good storyteller, you got that one down, because you're going to tell it to somebody somewhere. Yeah. And I, I just thought those were great stories. And I spent a couple years going around recording all kinds of people, some well-known, Pete Seeger, some musicians, because this is a clan I'm very close to. Mm -hmm. So uh, J.P. Fraley and... and uh, you know, even Melvin Wine, we talked about, I interviewed him, but on family stories. And so 
then um, and we did a, some shows that aired on public radio. It was always a public radio show. There wasn't any podcasting back in the day, so we just right. had this. Right. We created some shows for Father's Day and Mother's Day and Christmas, and we would string different of these because they tend to be short stories. Yeah, you know, they they're like O. Henry stories. They have a little yeah. arc, and they have usually a ending that kind of surprises you. <clears throat> and so then. Um, about three and a half years ago, I did a trade for a bow at a local violin shop. And in the, in the course of trading for the bow, I spent a lot of time with the bow. Uh, the, uh, well, he's also a bow maker, but he owned the shop, Bob Ray. And uh, we got talking, and I realized there was this wealth of stories in the violin world. Now, I'd been playing the violin, of course, fiddle, I call it, you know, for 40 years. And so quickly, I began to realize how little I knew about the instrument. You know, really, I knew it was spruce on top. I knew it was maple in the back. I knew there was a sound post. I you know, learned there was a bass bar. I mean, I really wasn't knowledgeable. And I, talking to him, I realized there was this entire world uh, about the violin and, and the cello and the viola. And certainly these are not instruments that I know in the bass. And that's when the idea for our series came, uh, The Rosin and the Bow. So the point of the uh, was to look at the mediums that we use to make this magic, this music, this pastime. Uh, and if I could get people just to talk about their relationships with their instruments, then I could bring in any kind of music that made sense within the context of the fiddle or the violin. Yeah. And so so I was able to go to, you know, Joshua Bell and, and Rachel Barton Pine and some very well, highly regarded, you know, highly regarded uh, musicians in what we call the classical world, but also Paul Anastasio, you know, who does, he's a great swing fiddler and and jazz people, and old time, yeah. uh, of course, because that's, that's so close to me, and then Irish and different people. And that was just the musicians, but it was also violin makers and collectors and dealers and string designers. We went to Diodario String Company in Long Island and saw how they designed uh, violin strings and you know how do they get the non-whistling yeah. E string that everybody yeah. seems to need? Well, it turns out there's chemicals, uh, dampening yeah. powders, and you know, <laughs> secret things. So, and everybody was so willing to sit down and talk about this. We got to go to Italy and France, and we spent a month in Ireland and met Noel Burke, who's Kevin Burke's brother, who's probably one of the most highly regarded bow makers in the world. Talked to insurance agents. Yeah, you know, a guy insured a billion dollars worth of musical <laughs> instruments. And you know what the instrument that kept him awake at night? Is the bass. Yeah. <laughs> Prone to every problem. He said, we make no money on basses. Everybody else is underwriting them. I think I've broken... I, I've broken three bases. There you go. <laughs> Just in my own life. <laughs> ah, I know. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I had a nice interview with uh, Nadine Landry and... Uh, you know, the bases that have gotten broken on trips to the Shetland Islands. That's and you know, and, But also the great community of bases. We just put a new podcast up by uh, Jeff Harshbarger, who's a bass player in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. Just brilliant. I mean, mm. it's just a, he can play anything. He can play uh, Turkish music. He can play tango. He can play classical. Yeah. Uh, I saw him playing with a traditional classic, a classical southern Indian violinist. Mm. And David Balankrishnan from the Turtle Island, it was all part of a quartet. But uh, the way he talks about the bass, I had no idea how many things you need to know about the instrument or what you can do with it and how you can approach it. But mostly it came down to the community of bass players because often you have to borrow basses where you go. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have this real community of people who sure. know a good bass yeah. and they'll lend you their bass. Yeah. You know, it's really good stuff. 
So that's what I did. So my wife, Paula, uh, great partner in all this, we got to travel, got to interview people. And because the podcast world now exists, as you know, uh, we we did do we we did six shows that aired, you know, 58 minute regular shows. But then we decided we could take these and, and make them available as podcasts. And that's what we're doing. So we're we have 150 interviews and we're just now we've launched in January. I think we have 22 or something up or somewhere like that. And every week we add a new one. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been listening and I'm excited to to um, catch up yeah. <laughs> and hear the rest. And yeah, it's a it's, it's cool. You're looking at, you know, the tunes and, and, and the relationship often with the music itself. And I think I'm, you know, our focus tends to be really on the instruments, which is a, it's different. And it's, it's interesting how many people's lives in how many different ways people are affected by violins and instruments in the violin family you know like you're saying like insurance agents you know and like uh um detectives yeah. <laughs> you know and just like all these people are like affected by this instrument um in in these very non-musical ways like it's like there's so many hmm. it's just like a loose theme that you can tell so many different kinds of stories about it's really cool Oh, I, I love what you're doing. It's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, yeah. we're now podcasts, podcasters in arms or yes. whatever. So it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah. Do you want to play one more? To yeah. Call? Should we play this Elzik's Farewell? That you, yeah, let's that do, that. You do I love that. And this is a version that uh, Dwight Diller taught me. So it, it's a very simple version. The low part, is, uh, not a lot going on in it, but there is, but it's not note-wise. But it's a, well, I learned this again way back. And Dwight Diller did say something to me, which I don't know, maybe it's an exaggeration, but I always thought it was kind of funny, since we got a fiddle and banjo. He said, no matter how bad you feel, you pick up a banjo and start playing, you're going to feel better. He said, but don't pick up a fiddle when you're feeling bad, you go off and shoot yourself. <laughs> and there's a little truth to that. Oh my God. Here we go, Elzik's Farewell. And the story with this... and. A lot of old-time people know the story, maybe, but, uh, you know, the rough story is that uh, a fellow named Elzik was going off to fight in the war between the states, the Civil War, whatever terminology was used by people at that time. And he was from what is now West Virginia, but in point of fact, of course, that was Virginia until the war started. Yes. So he was going off to fight for the South with his brother, and he was a fiddler. Many people played, and he was, and, but the night before he left, he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw his own death. Mm. He saw himself being killed. And, you know, I've thought a lot about that. And it was not a warning. Uh, it's a very kind of predestined idea. Yeah. It was just you're being told. Yeah. You're, you know, get your affairs in order. You're not coming back. Yeah. There was no sense that he could avoid it because his duty or whatever. So he was going. But that morning, he got on his horse to leave, as I've heard the story back, you know, when I first heard it. And his mother came out of the house. It was probably, you know, a huge log building pretty rough but she had a fiddle whatever that fiddle was at the time it was his and she said Elzik play me a tune to remember you by mm. and of course he hadn't told his mother about that dream he would never do that to her yeah but he he didn't think he's here again yeah and then allegedly he composed the tune at that moment Elzik's farewell yeah yeah it's kind of important to know <laughs> Thank you. 
Rosin the Bow is available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for it on your favorite app or follow the link in the show notes to rosinthebow.org. Thanks again to Elderly Instruments for sharing the show with your customers. You can visit their online store at elderly.com. Follow the link in the show notes to pre-order Get Up in the Cool Volume 3, the best of 2018 compilation album. And if you want a physical copy, you better act soon because they are scarce. If you want to hang out with me twice a week, I have another podcast called Think Outside the Box Set. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts or boxset.website. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to get up in the cool.